Section one of the Book of the Bush. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Magdalena Cook. The Book of the Bush by George Dunderdale. Section one. Purging out the old leaven. Part one. While the world was young, nations could be founded peaceably. There was plenty of unoccupied country, and when two neighbouring patriarchs found their flocks were becoming too numerous for the pasture, one said to the other, Let there be no quarrel, I pray, between thee and me. The whole earth is between us, and the land is watered as the garden of paradise. If thou wilt go to the east, I will go to the west, or if thou wilt go to the west, I will go to the east. So they parted in peace. But when the human flood covered the whole earth, the surplus population was disposed by war, famine, or pestilence. Death is the effectual remedy for overpopulation. Heroes arose who had no conscientious scruples. They skinned their natives alive or crucified them. They were then adored as demigods and placed among the stars. Pius Aeneas was the pattern of a good emigrant in the early times. But with all his piety he did some things that ought to have made his favouring deities blush, if possible. America, when discovered for the last of many times, was assigned by the Pope to the Spaniards and Portuguese. The natives were not consulted, but they were not exterminated. Their descendants occupy the land to the present day. England claimed a share in the new continent, and it was parcelled out to merchant adventurers by royal charter. The adventures of these merchants were various, but they held on to the land. New England was given to the Puritans by no earthly potentate. Their title came direct from heaven. Increase, Mather said, the Lord God has given us for a rightful possession the land of the heathen people, amongst whom we dwell. And where are the heathen people now? Australia was not given to us either by the Pope or by the Lord. We took this land, as we have taken many other lands, for our own benefit, without asking leave of either heaven or earth. A continent, with its adjacent islands, was practically vacant, inhabited only by the unearthly animal the kangaroo, and by black savages, who had not even invented the bow and arrow, never built a hut or cultivated a yard of land. Such people could show no valid claim to land or life, so we confiscated both. The British islands were infested with criminals from the earliest times. Our ancestors were all pirates, and we have inherited from them a lurking taint in our blood, which is continually impelling us to steal something or kill somebody. How to get rid of this taint was a problem which our statesmen found it difficult to solve. In times of war they mitigated the evil by filling the ranks of our armies from the jails, and manning our navies by the help of the press gang. But in times of peace, the scum of society was always increasing. At last, a great idea arose in the mind of England. Little was known of New Holland, except that it was large enough to harbour all the criminals of Great Britain and the rest of the population, if necessary. Why not transport all convicts, separate the chaff from the wheat, and purge out all the old leaven? By expelling all the wicked, England would become the model of virtue to all nations. So the system was established. Old ships were chartered and filled with the contents of the jails. If the ships were not quite seaworthy, it did not matter much. The voyage was sure to be a success. The passengers might never reach land, but in any case they would never return. On the vessels conveying male convicts, some soldiers and officers were embarked to keep order and put down mutiny. Order was kept with a lash, and mutiny was put down with a musket. 
On the ships conveying women there were no soldiers, but an extra half-crew was engaged. These men were called shilling-a-month men, because they had agreed to work for one shilling a month for the privilege of being allowed to remain in Sydney. If the voyage lasted twelve months, they would thus have the sum of twelve shillings with which to commence making their fortunes in the southern hemisphere. But the shilling-a-month man, as a matter of fact, was not worth one cent the day after he landed, and he had to begin life once more barefoot like a newborn babe. The seamen's food on board these transports was bad and scanty, consisting of live biscuit, salt horse, Yankee pork, and Scotch coffee. The Scotch coffee was made by steeping burnt biscuit in boiling water to make it strong. The convict's breakfast consisted of oatmeal porridge, and the hungry seamen used to crowd around the galley every morning to steal some of it. It would be impossible for a nation ever to become virtuous and rich if its seamen and convicts were reared in luxury and encouraged in habits of extravagance. When the transport cast anchor in the beautiful harbour of Port Jackson, the ship's blacksmith was called out of his bunk at midnight. It was his duty to rivet chains on the legs of the second sentence men, the twice convicted. They had been told on the voyage that they would have an island all to themselves, where they would not be annoyed by the contemptuous looks and bitter jibes of better men. All night long the blacksmith plied his hammer, and made the ship resound with the rattling chains and ringing manacles as he fastened them well on the legs of the prisoners. At dawn of day, chained together in pairs, they were landed on Goat Island. That was the bright little isle, their promised land. Every morning they were taken over in boats to the town of Sydney, where they had to work as scavengers and road-makers until four o'clock in the afternoon. They turned out their toes and shuffled their feet along the ground, dragging their chains after them. The police could always identify a man who had been a chain-gang prisoner during the rest of his life by the way he dragged his feet after him. In their leisure hours these convicts were allowed to make cabbage-tree hats. They sold them for about a shilling each, and the shopkeepers resold them for a dollar. They were the best hats ever worn in the sunny south, and were nearly indestructible. One hat would last a lifetime but for that reason they were bad for trade and became unfashionable. The rest of the transported were assigned as servants to those willing to give them food and clothing without wages. The free men were thus enabled to grow rich by the labours of the bondmen. Vice was punished and virtue rewarded. Until all the passengers had been disposed of, sentinels were posted on the deck of the transport with orders to shoot anyone who attempted to escape. But when all the convicts were gone, Jack was sorely tempted to follow the shilling-a-month men. He quietly slipped ashore, hurried off to Botany Bay, and lived in retirement until his ship had left Port Jackson. He then returned to Sydney, penniless and barefoot, and began to look for a berth. At the Rum Punch and Wharf he found a shilling-a-month man already installed as a cook on a colonial schooner. He was invited to breakfast, and was astonished and delighted with the luxuries lavished on the colonial seamen. He had fresh beef, fresh bread, good biscuit, tea, coffee, and vegetables, and three pounds a month wages. There was a vacancy on the schooner for an able seaman, and Jack filled it. He then registered a solemn oath that he would never go back to England no more, and kept it. Some kind of government was necessary, and, as the first inhabitants were criminals, the colony was ruled like a jail, the governor being head jailer. His officers were mostly men who had been trained in the army and navy. They were all poor and needy, for no gentleman of wealth and position would ever have taken office in such a community. 
they came to make a living and when free immigrants arrived and trade began to flourish it was found that the one really valuable commodity was rum and by rum the officers grew rich in course of time the country was divided into districts about thirty or thirty-five in number over each of which an officer presided as police magistrate with a clerk and staff of constables one of whom was official flogger always a convict promoted to the billet for merit and good behaviour new holland soon became an organised pandemonium such as the world had never known since sodom and gomorrah disappeared in the dead sea and the details of its history cannot be written to mitigate its horrors the worst of the criminals were transported to norfolk island the governor there had not the power to inflict capital punishment and the convicts began to murder one another in order to obtain a brief change of misery and the pleasure of a sea voyage before they could be tried and hanged in sydney a branch pandemonium was also established in van diemen's land this system was upheld by england for about fifty years the britannia a convict ship the property of Messrs. enderby and sons arrived at sydney on october fourteenth seventeen ninety one and reported that vast numbers of sperm whales were seen after doubling the southwest cape of van diemen's land whaling vessels were fitted out in sydney and it was found that money could be made by oil and whalebone as well as by rum sealing was also pursued in small vessels which were often lost and sealers lie buried in all the islands of the southern seas many of them having a story to tell but no storyteller whalers runaway seamen shilling a month men and escaped convicts were the earliest settlers in new zealand and were the first to make peaceful intercourse with the maoris possible they built themselves houses with wooden frames covered with reeds and rushes learned to converse in the native language and became family men they were most of them english and americans with a few frenchmen they loved freedom and preferred maori customs and the risk of being eaten to the odious supervision of the english government the individual white men in those days were always welcome especially if you brought with him guns ammunition tomahawks and hoes it was by these articles that he first won the respect and admiration of the native if the visitor was a pakeha tutua a poor european he might receive hospitality for a time in the hope that some profit might be made out of him but the maori was a poor man also with a great appetite and when it became evident that the guest was no better than a pauper and could not otherwise pay for his board the maori sat on the ground meditating and watching until his teeth watered and at last he attached the body and baked it in eighteen fourteen the church missionary society sent labourers to the distant vineyard to introduce christianity and to instruct the natives in the rights of property the first native protector of christianity and letters was hongi hika a great warrior of the napui nation in the north island he was born in seventeen seventy seven and voyaging to sydney in eighteen fourteen he became the guest of the rev mr marston in eighteen nineteen the reverend gentleman bought his settlement at kerikeri from hongi hika the price being forty-eight axes the area of the settlement was thirteen thousand acres the land was excellent well watered in a fine situation and near a good harbour hongi next went to england with the reverend mr kendall to see king george who was at that time in matrimonial trouble hongi was surprised to hear that the king had to ask permission of any one to dispose of his wife caroline he said he had five wives at home and he could clear off the whole of them if he liked without troubling anybody 
he received valuable presents in london which he brought back to sydney and sold for three hundred muskets and ammunition the year eighteen twenty two was the most glorious time of his life he raised an army of one thousand men three hundred of whom had been taught the use of his muskets the neighbouring tribes had no guns he went up the tamar and the tatara slew five hundred men and baked and ate three hundred of them on the waper he killed fourteen hundred warriors out of a garrison of four thousand and then returned home with crowds of slaves the other tribes began to buy guns from the traders as fast as they were able to pay for them with flax and in eighteen twenty seven at wangaroa a bullet went through hongi's lungs leaving a hole in his back through which he used to whistle to entertain his friends but he died of the wound fifteen months afterwards other men both clerical and lay followed the lead of the rev mr marston in eighteen twenty one mr fairbairn bought four hundred acres for ten pounds worth of trade baron de fieri bought forty thousand acres on the hokianga river for thirty-six axes from eighteen twenty five to eighteen twenty nine one million acres were bought by settlers and merchants twenty five thousand acres were bought at the bay of islands and hokianga in five years seventeen thousand of which belonged to the missionaries in eighteen thirty five the rev henry williams made a bold offer for the unsold country he forwarded a deed of trust to the governor of new south wales requesting that the missionaries should be appointed trustees for the natives for the remainder of their lands to preserve them from the intrigues of designing men before the year eighteen thirty nine twenty millions of acres had been purchased by the clergy and the laity for a few guns axes and other trifles and the maoris were fast wasting their inheritance but the titles were often imperfect when a man had bought a few hundred of acres for six axes and a gun and had paid the price agreed on to the owner another owner would come and claim the land because his grandfather had been killed on it he sat down before the settler's house and waited for payment and whether he got any or not he came at regular intervals during the rest of his life and sat down before the door with his spear and mere by his side waiting for more purchase money footnote a mere is axe made of greenstone End of footnote. some honest people in england heard of the good things to be had in new zealand formed a company and landed near the mouth of the hokianga river to form a settlement the natives happened to be at war and were performing a war dance the new company looked on while the natives danced and then all desire for land in new zealand faded from their hearts they returned on board their ship and sailed away having wasted twenty thousand pounds such people should remain in their native country your true rover lay or clerical comes with something or other and stays to get it or dies after twenty years of labour and an expenditure of two hundred thousand pounds the missionaries claimed only two thousand converts and these were christians merely in name in eighteen twenty five the rev henry williams said the natives were as insensible to redemption as brutes and in eighteen twenty nine the methodists in england contemplated withdrawing their establishment for want of success the catholic bishop pompalia with two priests landed at hokianga on january tenth eighteen thirty eight and took up his residence at the house of an irish catholic named poynton who was engaged in the timber trade poynton was a truly religious man who had been living for some time among the maoris he was desirous of marrying the daughter of a chief but he wished that she should be a christian and as there was no catholic priest nearer than sydney he sailed to that port with the chief and his daughter 
called on Bishop Holding, and informed him of the object of his visit. A course of instruction was given to the father and daughter, Poynton acting as interpreter. They were baptized, and the marriage took place. After the lapse of sixty years, their descendants were found to have retained the faith, and were living as good practical Catholics. Bishop Pompalia celebrated his first Mass on January 13, 1838, and the news of his arrival was soon noised abroad and discussed. The Methodist missionaries considered the action of the bishop as an unwarrantable intrusion on their domain, and being Protestants, they resolved to protest. This they did through the medium of thirty native warriors, who appeared before Poynton's house early in the morning of January the 22nd, when the bishop was preparing to say Mass. The chief made a speech. He said the bishop and his priests were enemies to the Maoris. They were not traders, for they had brought no guns, no axes. They had been sent by a foreign chief, the Pope, to deprive the Maoris of their land, and make them change their old customs. Therefore he and his warriors had come to break the crucifix, and the ornaments of the altar, and to take the bishop and his priest to the river. The bishop replied that although he was not a trader, he had come as a friend, and did not wish to deprive them of their country or anything belonging to them. He asked them to wait a while, and if they could find him doing the least injury to anyone, they could take him to the river. The warriors agreed to wait, and went away. Next day the bishop went further up the river to Werinaki, where Laming, a Pakeha Maori, resided. Laming was an Irish Protestant, who had great influence with his tribe, which was numerous and warlike. He was admired by the natives for his strength and courage. He was six feet three inches in height, as nimble and spry as a cat, and as long-winded as a coyote. His father-in-law was a famous warrior named Lizardskin. His religion was that of Church of England, and he persuaded his tribe to profess it. He told them that the Protestant God was stronger than the Catholic God worshipped by his fellow countryman, Poynton. In after years, when his converts made cartridges of their Bibles and rejected Christianity, he was forced to confess that their religion was of this world only. They prayed that they might be brave in battle, and that their enemies might be filled with fear. Laming's Christian seal did not induce him to forget the duties of hospitality. He received the bishop as a friend, and the Europeans round Tatura and other places came regularly to Mass. During the first six years of the mission, 20,000 Maoris either had been baptised or were being prepared for baptism. End of section 1